The following message was recorded at a Warhorn Media event. For more information, please visit warhornmedia.com. And welcome to the Reformation. Let me start by reading this scripture that's in front of you. Uh, this particular session is titled From Shame to Chic. You all know what chic means, C H I C, to hip, to cool, to, uh, you know, to chic. From shame to chic, how we got here. Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion. And came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. Luke 10, 30 to 34. Let us pray. Father, what we need is your word and your spirit. We don't need talking heads. We don't need books. We need you to pour out your spirit on us as pastors so that we will begin to be truthful in how we preach and teach and live. And tonight we ask that you will use this time of thinking and hearing your word to change our hearts. We pray that the words from this mouth, my mouth, and from all of our hearts, the thoughts will be acceptable in your sight, you who are a strength and a redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Jesus loves sinners. And from his love, Jesus called sinners to repent. And let me say that again. Jesus loved sinners, and from his love, he called sinners to repent. If we follow Jesus today, we will love sinners, and we will call them to repent. True love for sinners does not avoid the most risky and difficult work that Christian love is called to do, which is naming their sin and calling them to repent. That we are failing in this work is the point of this conference. Even the most conservative parts of the Christian church in North America today are failing to love gays, to love the effeminate, and to love lesbians. This is the nature of our failure. We do not command those tempted by homosexuality to love and to live the sex God made them. We think telling gays and lesbians not to have sex with each other is all that is required. We may talk about how body parts fit together, but sex is much more than body parts, and that's where we are silent. Sex is all of life, from conception to death. But we are scared to call gay men to be men and lesbian women to be women. But gays and lesbians are our neighbors. We owe them the same tender care the good Samaritan gave the man lying by the side of the road when he bound up his wounds. Gays and lesbians, can we say it, are wounded. Now you realize that that's that's saying something that's controversial today, right? They're wounded. Okay, gays and lesbians are wounded and loving our neighbor means binding his wounds. 
When he spoke to the woman at the well, our Savior gave us an example of how to love sinners. After asking her for a drink, Jesus did not feign ignorance of her sin. But he said to her, go call your husband and come here. When the Samaritan woman responded, I have no husband, he said, you've correctly said I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. Jesus saw her wound and brought it out into the open so that she could be healed. And thus, when she believed in Jesus, the Samaritan woman's testimony to all the men of her city was what? Do you remember what what she said? Come, she said come. But what did she say? Yeah, she said come. You've got to see this dude. He told me everything that I've ever done. And so, thank you. (laughs) I never can figure out how to teach to turn them off either. Okay. And so, she said, come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. And this is the basis of Jesus' witness to this woman. And this is the good report she has about Jesus when she goes back into that city. Now, ask yourself this. Are you and am I faithful to tell homosexuals all they have done? Come on. We don't have any faith to do it. And yet God has decreed that homosexuality is contrary to his beautiful purpose for sexual intimacy between people. So why don't we tell them everything that they've done? Calling gays and lesbians and the effeminate to repentance is the one thing that's sure to get us hated by our city's elite and to bring on persecution. Even our church members will tell us that preaching against effeminacy is sure to contribute to feelings of insecurity, to a propensity to substance abuse and depression, and a high incidence of suicide. Let me read from a summary of the literature. You know how some studies are studies and other studies are summaries of studies? This is something that's come out recently that all of you should read. And it's published by the New Atlantics. It's a special report on sexuality and gender, findings from the biological, psychological, and social sciences by two guys who are at the very top of the heap in terms of scientific credentials. One guy ran the psychiatry program at Johns Hopkins for years, I think 25 years, he ran it and, uh, at the medical school there. And so I'm reading from a, and they go through all of the studies on uh, what I would call sexual dysphoria. They call gender dysphoria. All the varieties of ways in which the way we live doesn't match, the way we identify doesn't match the body that God has given us, okay? Or I would say the sexuality God's given us. And they say this, they say, quote, the most exhaustive collation of published and unpublished international studies on the association of suicide attempts and sexual orientation with different methodologies has produced a very consistent picture. Nearly all studies found increased incidences of self-reported suicide attempts among sexual minorities, unquote. Okay? And so even if we have faith to speak the truth in a politically countercultural time, none of us want to add to the suffering of people who are suffering under gender or sexual dysphoria. Okay, my point is, it's not going to get us good press to come out 
and speak about the sin of the gay and lesbian world. It just isn't going to do it. By now, we all know the routine. Naming the gay identity and gay sex abominations, quote-unquote, and sin, quote-unquote, is hate speech. It must stop if we're going to keep high schoolers from committing suicide. It must stop if we're going to further the cause of meaningful equality for sexual minorities. Do you feel me talking to you? Further the cause of sexual minorities, right? Sounds good. Okay? It must stop if we want our church to grow. It must stop if we're going to keep our salaries. Okay? It must stop if we're going to save our life. And that's what it's all about, isn't it? Right? Who wants to to lose their life? You know? This is the quandary Christians face today. Either we fit in and avoid the hostility of the world by avoiding talk of homosexual identity and intercourse being sin, or we go ahead and preach repentance to gays and lesbians and lose our employment, friendships, and the nonprofit status of our churches. It is inevitable. It will happen. So do we really love the effeminate and gays? Are we speaking and preaching God's truth, God's whole truth, and nothing but God's truth to them? Or has our self-protective instinct taken over so that our gospel message is unfaithful biblically and unloving personally? Now some personal history. Certain cities have certain sins. Las Vegas is called Sin City, but the sin it's known for is not sodomy. San Francisco's sin is sodomy, and Bloomington is close behind it. In Genesis, Scripture three times emphasizes that it was all the men of Sodom who came out and gathered around Lot's house, demanding he send out his male guests so that they could sodomize them. Look at the text from Genesis 19, 4 and 5. Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people from every quarter. Think about it. And they called to Lot and said to him, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. All right? Sodomy was characteristic of sodomites. And not just a few or most of them, but both young and old, all the people, and from every quarter. Sodom is ahead of Bloomington, but Bloomington is determined to catch up. Recently, a man who worked under the supervision of a Christian in our congregation went on Facebook and threatened to murder this Christian man. Unsurprisingly, he linked his obscene murderous threats to this Christian's opposition to homosexuality. And in Bloomington, this is the context for our ministry. For the past 25 years, Mary Lee and I... Would you raise your hand? This is my dear wife, Mary Lee. Mary Lee and I have lived here in this gay mecca. By God's grace, then, loving and calling gays and lesbians to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ has been a defining characteristic of our congregation's gospel witness, fellowship, diaconal ministry, and discipleship. This is the home of Indiana University, and thus the home of two institutions that have been in the forefront of the homosexualism. Now, let me explain my use of that word. I don't know what to call this movement, so I've just said, let's call it homosexualism. Let's call it the homosexualist movement. Let's call those who are proponents of it homosexualists, right? 
Okay, and what it refers to is not that they're all homosexually inclined, not that they have homosexual relations, but that they are advocates, whether they themselves are involved in the sin or not, of the normalization of homosexuality, all right? And so Bloomington is the home of two institutions that have been in the forefront of the homosexualism that defines our culture today. One of those institutions is... McKinsey Institute, and the other is, come on, Jacob's School of Music, all right? First, Kinsey. The Kinsey Institute is named for Alfred Kinsey, a professor of zoology, all right, at IU, who studied human sexuality and issued the Kinsey Reports in two volumes, the first in 1948 on male sexuality and the second, the year I was born, on female sexuality. Kinsey documented every form of sexual perversion known to man. His goal was to help along the sexual revolution, and he did it. Kinsey stopped at nothing. Some of the subjects of his study provided him with information on their molestation of little children, even down to two months of age. These men were degraded criminals. They had raped little children over and over again and would continue to do so if they were released from prison. And this was Kinsey's research. This was Kinsey's science, and it put little old Indiana University down in the hills of southern Indiana on the map. To this day, the Kinsey Institute remains at the center of IU's campus, and it is one of the university's principal claims to fame. When I first took a call to serve as a pastor here in Bloomington, an older woman in the congregation asked to meet with me, and we started what became a tradition that lasted for over a decade. Each week, this mother in Israel, a wonderful uh, name in the Old Testament, this mother in Israel, we'll call, I'll call her Christiana, came to my office and we sat and talked together about whatever was on her mind. Christiana was a very godly woman, and she was also very smart. For high school, she had gone to Boston's Latin School, the best public high school in the country. She went on to get her undergrad degree at Radcliffe and then was awarded a graduate fellowship to study astronomy at Harvard. There she met her future husband that we'll call Ralph. After completing his doctorate at Harvard, also in astronomy, Ralph applied for a position at Indiana University, and Christiani accompanied him on his trip to Bloomington for the interview. At the time, prospective faculty hires and their spouses, then mostly wives, were expected to allow Professor Kinsey to take their sexual history while they were in town for their interview. Thus it was that dear Christiana sat down with Alfred Kinsey and answered all his immodest and prying and utterly personal questions. One day during our weekly meeting, Christiana quite matter-of-factly mentioned Alfred Kinsey taking down her sexual history. I remember the moment she said it. Her simple statement was incomprehensible to me. I'd heard before from Christiana how Kinsey and his wife would invite faculty couples over to their house for dinner, and then after dinner, all of them would go into the living room, and Alfred would put some classical symphony on the record player and turn out the lights, and they would commune with the music and each other in silence. Well, Christiana and her husband Ralph had been invited one evening, and they'd gone, and they thought it was so weird that they never went back. 
But now, this godly woman in her late 70s was telling me Kinsey had taken her sexual history. And this was beyond weird. As I said, Christiani was godly. She was as pure as the fresh-blown snow. She was humble. She was modest. Her husband was the only person she had ever loved. Scarcely believing what I had just heard her say, I said to Christiana, what was it like? What did you say? She let out a soft chuckle and dismissed the man's insults with a self-deprecating observation. Well, I'm afraid he found me quite boring. How many of us could say the same? It made me sick to my stomach to think of that master of sexual depravity and destroyer of all that is virtuous and pure, questioning my dear Christiana. The thought of Christiana being in the same room with Kinsey and having to answer his shameful inquiries was a defining moment in my life. Right then, I came to understand that I, my wife, my family, and all our Christian brothers and sisters living in Bloomington dwelled in a city that could as well be called Sodom or Gomorrah. As I said, Kinsey published his scientific research back in 1948, and it was a worldwide sensation. Everyone talked about it, and everyone took its findings as justification to further decay into perversion and wickedness. Everyone else was doing it, so why shouldn't they? One of the wiser and more prescient statements made on the release of the Kinsey Report came from the world-renowned anthropologist Margaret Mead. Now, some of you don't know who Margaret Mead was, But Margaret Mead was anything but a Christian. All right, I'll just leave it at that. And she is to this day the most well-known, the founder of anthropology. She's just universally respected in the academy. This is what she she said about the Kinsey Report. She said, in every society, sex patterns depend on a careful and meticulous balance between ignorance and knowledge, sophistication and naivete. The Kinsey Report, by the publicity that has been given to this series of facts about extramarital and abnormal and unusual forms of sex satisfaction, has upset the balance in our society between ignorance and knowledge, between the things we don't mention and the things we do. And it may be expected to have considerable effect in our society for that reason. Quite a good deal of our virtue has depended upon people not knowing what other people were doing. And if they had known, they would have gone and done likewise. And when they weren't quite sure, sometimes they didn't. Dr. Kinsey has limited himself to the description of a non-interpersonal and meaningless act. There is no suggestion of emotional content, of spiritual significance, of non-spiritual significance, of ethical significance. He is perpetuating to an extreme degree the tendency to confuse sex with excretion. Excremental rather than sacramental. The major abstraction, which I think any anthropologist from Mars would get out of the Kinsey Report, is that sex is an impersonal, meaningless act which men have to perform fairly often, but oftener if they haven't been to school much. 
In the past, it was said, it's better to marry than to burn. Now, we translate the verse, it's better to have an outlet of some sort, because you've got to have an outlet of some sort. And so it's just a question of which outlet, and Kinsey suggests no way of choosing between a woman and a sheep. They say that the thief thinks everyone steals. Kinsey's researchers and Kinsey himself were personally degraded sexually. And so they came up with categories that matched their own practices. Kinsey encouraged his research colleagues freely to express their sexual desires with others and with one another, not allowing the petty morality of their marriage vows to interfere with self-expression. Then Kinsey himself led the way, freely betting whomever he wanted, whenever he wanted, both male and female. Kinsey saw his own sexual degradation as normative and set about categorizing people in such a way that exclusive heterosexuality was pulled off its pedestal and a continuum of homosexual desires was declared to be the scientific fact. Given Kinsey's promotion of homosexuality, it's no surprise Bloomington consistently ranks as one of the most gay cities in the country. Recently, the national gay publication, The Advocate, listed the gayest cities of America, and they ranked Bloomington fourth. And then they gave this explanation. This forward-thinking college town. I mean, come on, guys. It's utterly repulsive. (laughs) You know, don't you wish you lived with me in this forward-thinking college town? (laughs) You know? This forward-thinking college town is a magnet city for gays in the Grain Belt. It's also home to Indiana University, where Miss Gay IU, said to be the first student-sponsored drag competition held on any campus, is in its 20th year. The Kinsey Institute for Research in Sex, Gender, and Reproduction is also here, inspiring the entire town to be heteroflexible. (laughs) I laugh at weird times. And I'm sorry, but for some reason it strikes my funny bone. And a lot of what strikes my funny bone is the disparity between the things that we're talking about, the things that I'm saying, and the reality that we all live. You know, that the dissonance is when I laugh. And so Kinsey said heteroflexible. Now, I said there are two institutions, and the second is Indiana University's Jacobs School of Music. After any ranking of music schools puts Jacobs at or near the top, with the Chronicle of Higher Education ranking at number one, and the publication Classical Singer ranking Jacobs number one among the ten best voice schools in the country. The significance of Jacobs and its opera program is, again, homosexuality. After a quarter century serving as a pastor here in Bloomington, I've learned to expect that men studying voice at Jacobs are more likely to be gay than men in any other program at IU, except maybe flute and organ. Okay? You know, I'm generalizing. You getting facial tics? You know? I can remember we had a guy here in this church. I'm not supposed to get off the manuscript, but we had this guy in the church here, and he was studying organ. And I mean, this guy was, a, was, this guy was just as straight as straight could be, 
you know? You, when you live in Bloomington, you get what we call gaydar. Have you ever heard of gaydar? You get pretty good at it. And this dude had me completely off my gaydar. And when he got done getting his uh, degree in organ performance, he came to me and was talking about where he could serve. And I used to be a pastor in the Presbyterian Church USA, the mainline denomination. And, and he was obviously, you know, a place that's... Uh, mainline churches have lots of pipe organs. So if you want to get a job as, as an organist, it's a pretty good bet that one of the places you're going to apply is PCUSA churches. So he asked me what I thought of him going to work in a PCUSA church. He was a biblical Christian, you know? And I said, well, if you're going to go into the PCUSA and be an organist, you need to be very, very careful that you understand the battle in the PCUSA to normalize homosexuality because it is intense in the PCUSA. And I just, you know, sometimes when you're talking to people, you know, you would have expected him, if you knew his background, you would have expected him to say, oh, yeah, you know, I'm cool with that. Yeah, yeah. But there was a silence. And then my gaydar got active. And I said, wait a second. Are you ever tempted by sexual identity issues? You know, that's the way I asked it, you know. Then another silence. And then, well, well, not since high school. Dude, come on. I'm your pastor. You can talk to me. You know, in other words, this is how, do you know that it's like over 95% of the American Guild of Organists are gay? Did you all know this? Well, it's true. I hate to tell you this, but... Uh, Organists in America, it's not like this over in Europe, but in America, for some reason, the most bombastic instrument that there is on the face of the earth is owned by gays. <laughs> now, here's an interesting thing. If you want virility and you don't have it, well, maybe the organ will give it to you. Well, I, come on, people. We all know this is true. Come on. Come on. All right, so here this dear man... And he was dear. And so what you run into is you run into categories of people. And let me tell you, the School of Music and the Opera program is one of those categories of places. And it's very easy to know the struggles that men that are in the opera program have. You know, I, I get so irritated with the naivete of people who supposedly believe in the depravity of man. When are we going to actually believe what we say we believe? If we believe in the fall, then we should believe that there's no temptation taken us but what is common to man. And if we have two women who are out on the mission field for a lifetime living together, we should ask them whether they're sexually intimate with each other. Have you ever thought about this? But how, how on earth can you be helpful? to your sheep if you do not think about their lives and then put yourself in their shoes and think, if I was a single woman who was 50 years old and had lived with another woman for 20 years, I think I might be tempted to have sexual intimacy with her if I was a woman, right? I mean, isn't this what, you know, in the old days, when men went out 
on sailing vessels, their Puritan pastors who took sin seriously gave them pamphlets on how to avoid buggery on sailing vessels. If you have a young man that goes into prison from your church because of something he's done, here's an idea. Tell him how to fight against the temptation to bugger another man or to be buggered. You know? And now I'm loving them, aren't I, as a pastor? Because we all know what goes on in a prison, right? Don't we know? If our daughter's going to go out and date a man for the first time, are we going to talk to her about not letting him touch body parts that she doesn't have or that he doesn't have? Okay, all right. I'm going to calm down now. Okay. Listen, every part of life is stereotypical, and you should make generalizations about it because generalizations are the bread and butter of pastoral ministry. Okay? If you want to prove to people that you never stereotype, (laughs) you're worthless. Okay, now I'm coming back to Jacob's School of Music, okay? I'm I'm, coming down. Didn't cry? Okay. All right, now. They have always been, people tempted by homosexuality have always been a part of our congregation. When we first came to Bloomington, there was this couple. And I'm not going to identify their sex. It's obvious that they were in a homosexual relationship with each other. Everybody in the church, oh, no, 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 they didn't see it. They didn't know it. Monkey. See no evil? No evil. Monkey. Monkey stupid. You know? Which is, of course, precisely what a pastor is supposed to be is a stupid monkey, <laughs> you know. We pay you to be stupid, you idiot. Now, why are you seeing things, you know? Okay, I had to get that out of my system. All right, now we're back at the Jacob's School of Music. So, since Bloomington is the home of both the Kinsey Institute and Jacob's School of Music, gays and lesbians have always been part of our congregation, a significant aspect of the pastoral work of our pastors and elders. We plead with lesbians who live together to repent and move apart. Okay? We ask single men who show no interest in the opposite sex if they're gay. We tell opera singers who are out on the road or in another city gigging using Craigslist to hook up while they're away to come home. Now, is this scary? (laughs) You know, isn't this okay? You know, wouldn't you want, if you were somebody out gigging at an opera company, wouldn't you want to have a pastor or an elder who asked you whether you were using Craigslist while you were out there? Is this not what we would want? Is this not what we would want for our sons and daughters at another church? And so the next time they go out to gig, if the sin starts again, then we send someone to stay with them. Once we told a man to break his contract and come home, a man in New York City, the elders told another man to stop gigging entirely. We never stop working with gay men and lesbian women, some single and some married. We love them, we hug and kiss them. They are in our homes and at our tables, eating with us and with our children. Okay? Those who repent and believe we baptize and welcome to the Lord's table, no big deal. Those who are unrepentant, we keep from the sacraments until they repent and believe. Those who go back to the pit from which God dug them, we plead with them 
to return to Jesus. Sadly, after sometimes hundreds of hours of prayer and loving counsel, after our pastors and elders have pleaded with them to return to the shepherd of the souls, some we excommunicate. And if they show up at their trial and they cry as the judgment is given and the prayers are made, it would not be the first time. And they know they're loved. Are you with me? Back in 1974, when I was living in San Diego and working for the Wittenberg Door, any of you remember the Wittenberg Door? Okay. I got my ear pierced that year down at the plaza. I used a roommate matching service. The roommate matching service placed me in a home owned by a homosexual prostitute who did his work in his bedroom and was quite forward in talking to me about it. And this is back in 1974. In 1976, Mary Lee and I were married, and we lived in Madison, Wisconsin, where two of our closest friends, both members of our small group, were gay. Conservative, reformed, evangelical church. Then we moved to Boulder. And you know what Boulder's like, right? And then we moved to the north shore of Boston. We moved to Bloomington back in 1992 when the AIDS epidemic was spreading across our country like wildfire. And soon after we arrived, a mother in the church asked me to go up to Indy and visit her son who was in a hospice dying of AIDS. She said she hoped I would not mention his condition to anyone in the church. Around the same time, another son of that congregation who made his living in opera in New York City also died of AIDS. And after a memorial service was held out east, and by the way, a name that many of you would know was the prominent opera soprano that was, you know, was at his funeral, and just everybody was so proud that she had come to his funeral. Then they brought his body back to Bloomington, and I was asked to officiate at the small committal service for family only. I'd never met the man, I barely knew his parents, but there I was at the graveside laying him to rest with the words, man that is born of a woman has but a short time to live and is full of misery. He comes up and he's cut down like a flower. He flees as it were a shadow and never continues in one place. In the midst of life we are in death, of whom may we seek for succor, But of thee, O Lord, do you know what comes next? Who for our sins art justly displeased. This is the old Thomas Cranmer, five-century-old committal service. It's been used across the English-speaking world at the graveside. In the midst of life we are in death. Of whom may we seek for succor? But of thee, O Lord, who for our sins art justly displeased. Thou knowest, Lord, the secrets of our hearts. Shut not thy merciful ears to our prayer, but spare us, Lord most holy, O God most mighty, O holy and merciful Savior, thou most worthy judge eternal. As you listened to those of us who are going to talk this weekend, 
please understand that it's because we've seen the work of the Holy Spirit in bringing the effeminate and sodomites and lesbians to repentance. This is the reason for the book, for the conference, and it is our congregation's, not mine, it is our congregation's testimony to God's truth. We'll take a break for about five minutes. We'll take a few questions if you want them, and then I have... Remember I said the trajectory, and I want to describe it to you very quickly, and then we'll be done. What have we done? Well, back in about 1962, the first birth control pills were, 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 were marketed. And what all the evangelicals did is they began to buy birth control pills and limit their children, Okay. And then there were arguments about whether or not it was okay to do that, and generally the godly parents were uncomfortable with it and had a lot of children. And the more nominal evangelicals and the more nominal Christians just prophylacted so that when Mary Lee and I were growing up in Wheaton, you know, the center of evangelicalism, I would say that it was just understood that the the Christian would tie their tubes after two. And so if you look at our generation, my guess is a huge percentage of our peers who grew up in evangelical churches with evangelical leaders as their parents had maybe two to four children. Mary Lee's parents had ten. Our parents had seven or eight, depending on how you count miscarriages and stuff like that. Mary Lee's mother now is alive at 99, about to have her birthday next month and turn 100. She had 10 children, 28 grandchildren, and she's now how high on great-grandchildren? She has 80-some great-grandchildren. And we get together, all of us. We will get together this summer. Now, once you've taken God's command to be fruitful and multiply, and you've made it a lifestyle option... Okay, you can go ahead and not be fruitful and multiply because, what, the kingdom of God is more important to you than simply breeding. By the way, do you know what homosexuals have always called heterosexual couples? Breeders. And they mean it's an insult. So you start with birth control, and you, you ask yourself this question, okay? Think about this. In Scripture... What is true of marriage in the Garden of Eden prior to the fall? Give me the essential descriptions of marriage of the man and the woman in the Garden prior to the fall. How would you give them? What are they? Leave and cleave, although there's nobody to leave then. Fruitfulness clearly there. God commands it, and it's a command he gives over and over again, including at the end of Malachi for the propagation of a godly seed. All right, Westminster standards say that the third purpose is the propagation of a godly seed. What else is in the garden? Huh? One flesh, the two shall be one. What else? No shame. What else? Yeah, there's work, but I, yeah, and I don't want to get off on that. Work is clearly in the garden. It will be in heaven, yes. And yeah, mutual comfort, but there's one that you haven't gotten. Yeah, we got naked. Heterosexual. Heterosexual. Man, woman. Not, not Adam and Steve. Adam and Eve. Okay? And don't be ashamed of using that stupid thing. Rhetoric is helpful. All right? Now, fruitful, 
we did away with in the 50s and 60s. Do you all see this? Okay? There's a unanimous testimony of the church until the mid-century against you using birth control to limit the number of children you have. I have counseled birth control in some situations. I think it's right. But again, can we please stop sacrificing the abnormal or the normal on the altar of the abnormal, okay? There are exceptions, but that's the norm. Now you move forward to fornication. So in the 60s and 70s, what are all evangelical church children doing? Come on, many of you were alive then. You knew what you were doing. What were you doing? You were petting because Lewis Meads told you it was okay in an InterVarsity press book. It was more responsible, okay? Professor at Fuller. Ethics. And so all the evangelical churches stopped disciplining sexual immorality before marriage. We all know this, right? Okay? So we've gotten rid of be fruitful. Now we've gotten rid of in marriage, all right? And nobody's disciplining the children of the elders and the pastors for their fornication. Okay? Then what comes? Divorce. I remember when this hit, because Dad was writing his column, and this nationally known evangelical leader came out uh, calling for uh, remarriage as a God-given opportunity after a divorce. And I remember my dad, I don't know if you remember the, the day, but I remember the day clearly with Dad. And he's getting ready to write his next column, and Mud, which is what we call my mother, and I, and I don't know who else was there, and we were saying to Dad, Dad... You have to write against this book because this man was divorced. And he was writing a book for evangelicals saying why remarriage is such a wonderful gift from God in grace. And so we said, Dad, you've got to write against this. And you know what my father said? And he was our, he's still our hero. And we, I never forget him saying this. I'll never forget it. He looked at us and he said, I don't want to write on that. Because he said, if I do, they will attack me. Imagine Doug Wilson saying that. That was what it was like for, for me to hear Dad say that. So he wrote on it, and guess what they did? They attacked him. Yeah. And so now we've got birth control, ollie ollie and free. We've got fornication, ollie ollie and free. Now we've got divorce and remarriage, ollie ollie and free, right? And then what hits? The next thing that hits is adultery. Uh, and adultery and divorce and remarriage, uh, you know, you can refer to divorce and remarriage as sort of a prissy, pharisaical, serial adultery. You know what I'm saying? But those things are kind of mixed up together, divorce and, and remarriage and adultery. And I remember being in a meeting of reform leaders in Wilmore, Kentucky, in Asbury, who was hosting the meeting. And it was the leaders of reform movements of the PCUSA, the United Methodist Church, the Disciples of Christ, the Episcopalians, the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, um, and we all got together every year, and there were about 20 to 25 of us. And we had that year, the United Methodists were, and the, the PCUSA both had study committees studying homosexuality. And we knew what was coming. We knew that homosexuality was going to be approved in the denomination. And so we were sitting around talking, and they, they brought in this, this tall steeple pastor. So you all know what a tall steeple pastor is? A tall steeple pastor is a man who's so good 
at milking the cows that he has herds of thousands. You know, he's very rich, he's very sophisticated, he has perfect confidence in everything he does. And um, they brought one of these guys in from the United Methodist Church, and he had such a large church and was so influential and so wealthy that they put him on the National Committee to study sexuality that was supposed to come in and recommend for sodomy, right? So this guy gets up, and he talks to us and describes to us the battle. You know, they're going to do this, they're going to do that, they're going to do the other thing, and it's just horrible. We're all sitting there going, we're done for, we're done for. And I'm just listening, and I know we're done for. I'm not stupid. I'm about 20, 25 years younger than he is, and I can see the writing on the wall better than he can. And when he gets done, I raised my hand, and I said to him, um, you know, I wonder, has it ever occurred to us that when we decided that the purpose of marriage wasn't being fruitful and multiplying, that it was inevitable that we would end up approving homosexuality? Because once you've decided that marriage is about intimacy and not having children, why shouldn't men that like men and women that like women be able to have intimacy together, right? Now, I was asking that question because it was just occurring to me. It was like the lights were going off in my brain, and I thought we were there to talk about lights going off in our brain. Now, <laughs> the words had no sooner come out of this seeker's mouth, right, than that tall steeple leader said, what do you want? You want us to go back to India and just breed like rabbits? And I've never forgotten it. I realize, like Chesterton says, you've never hit your mark unless you get a good rebound. And I realized I'd hit my mark. <laughs> I realized that once you have taken away every single meaning of sexuality that God designed, every perversion is going to be rampant. And if evangelicals are not willing to fight here and not willing to fight there and not willing to fight here and not willing to fight here, every, every single one of them is a judgment call, you know? Every single one of them you can argue one way or the other. And then we hit feminism, all right? And what do we do with feminism? Well, what we do with feminism is some people rewrite scripture and say kephale doesn't mean whatever any idiot knows it means, right? You know? And some people talk about authentane, and some people argue about this and argue about that. But I went to work with the men that were known to be warriors on this, and what I found was those men who we think are warriors on this, when it comes down to it, they're ashamed of the doctrine of sexuality. They have no theology of sexuality. Because when it comes to the world and to anything outside the privacy of the church and the home, they have nothing to say, and they're principled in saying, you should say nothing. And if I said their names, you'd all know them. And I talked to them again and again and again, year after year, because I'd gotten into this battle because I used to be a feminist, and I was a real believer. You know, nothing like a reformed alcoholic, right? <laughs> and I found out that when it comes to feminism and the meaning of Adam being created first and then Eve, no pastors have any desire to rebuke and admonish with great patience in and out of season. And so... 
ultimately, I mean, you understand this. You got Tim Keller, and what's Tim Keller saying? Tim Keller is saying, yes, there is some authority of the man in the marriage, and it's a tie-breaking authority, right? That's, that's how he defines it, a tie-breaking authority. That's not what goes down between me and my dear wife, Mary Lee, right? We don't arrive at a point where she looks at me and I look at her and she says, I think, we've, I think we're at an impasse. This is, seems to be a tie. And I go, oh, yeah, I think it is, you know? And she says, well, why don't you go ahead and make the decision then because it's a tie. <laughs> Listen, when my wife and I are fighting, it's a fight, Right? And at that point, I must feel that I am responsible for the decision because I'm the man and because God put that on my shoulders. And it really doesn't matter at that point how long we've spent, what's going on, but when I realize that I am responsible for the right decision in this situation, there are many decisions that this doesn't matter. And I agree that many times I say it does matter where it doesn't. <laughs> right? But if all we can find within ourselves as pastors and elders is to defend the perquisite of the husband in breaking ties, you know, not bow ties, it's pathetic. It's absolutely pathetic. And so what we end up doing is we end up on every single doctrine in in the Garden of Eden prior to the fall, trimming. You know, like they used to do coins made of precious metal, just take a little bit off and pass it off as the real coin. And that's what we do as pastors. We keep trimming, 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 trimming. And now we're at sexuality. And what we're doing with homosexuality is exactly what we've done with every other doctrine. We've reduced the manhood and womanhood of authority and submission to what? To a private Christian truth that only has application in the church and the home. Any of you can argue with me that that is the church today. It's a private Christian truth. Any of you going to argue? Go ahead. I like arguing. But I know a lot of leaders. I know a lot of pastors. I know a lot of denominations. That's where we are today. And now we hit homosexuality. And we think that when it comes to homosexuality, we're going we're gonna to hang tough, right? We all think that, right? But we're not. And that's the point of the book. Because what you'll see is the sweet spot with homosexuality is saying that the body parts have to fit, but that identity doesn't matter. Do you understand? That's the whole weekend right there. Body parts have to fit, but identity doesn't matter. And the reason we say identity doesn't matter is because when you start talking about manhood and womanhood, all hell is going to break loose. You try to identify the nature of manhood to your sweet wife, let alone the nature of womanhood. I remember doing it with Mary Lee. I remember when Joseph was, was born. And back then you didn't know what it was before it was born. But it turns out we had a man. <laughs> And Joseph came out on April Fool's Day. And uh, the minute he was a boy, I felt completely uh, destroyed. And I looked at myself, and I just thought to myself, I do not have a clue how to raise a boy. 
And I tell about this, and Daddy tried the book, and I and I and I I was scared out of my wits, and I also knew that I couldn't talk about my fear to, to dear Mary Lee. I couldn't. Because I knew she'd have no patience for it, right? And sure enough, when I did bring it up to her, <laughs> tell them what you said. I do believe that I said, I do not see what difference it makes. But you realize what my response to her saying that is, you feel like a complete fool. You're confessing to your wife your inadequacy to be a father and to teach the nature of manhood. And you're telling your best friend your lover, the bride of your youth, and she says, I don't see what difference it makes. And that's the reason that we've come to where we've come on homosexuality. Because long ago, we gave up teaching manhood and womanhood. And how are we going to minister to an effeminate man who's tempted to have sex with another man until we go back and begin to teach what it is to be a man? And the minute we do that, we're going to be mocked and scorned and laughed at and jeered at. Because how do you teach it? How do you do it? You know, son, you're a man. And men don't play flutes. Son, you're a man. And men don't read poetry, and they certainly don't write it. Men don't listen to classical music. Men hunt. Men hunt with bow. And listen, it's a lot easier to talk about what men do and don't do than girls. You try teaching your girl to be a girl with your wife listening? Sweetie, you're supposed to have a gentle and quiet spirit, which God will not despise. (laughs) Oh, come on. Listen, it's hard. It's hard. Can we all admit it's hard? But listen, until we begin to have a band of brothers that aren't going to take Guadalcanal, they're simply going to take sex back for God. Until we have that, the church is just dying. And I have never had a case where I have had any young person, any college student or graduate student resent me for the saying the things I'm saying to you when I've said it to them. Never. It's not the sheep that you're concerned about. You're really concerned about your peers and their judgment of you. And that's pathetic. Where would a Paul have been helpful if he had been concerned about what all the, the sycophants to the super apostles thought of him? Let's pray. So I was on a, a mission trip with uh, these students last year. Two boys were doing work um, together. They had no, uh, apparently no real friendship going into this. They became extremely close on this trip. Mm-hmm. And following that, close in ways that, that sort of set off my, my gaydar a little bit, mm-hmm. both of them already are softer boys. Um, it, it actually was troubling enough to me that I did talk to them individually, just, just asked. And, of course, they flatly denied and said, no, we like girls and whatever. And, and I don't, I mean, I don't know what else to say to that. I can't, do you, do you keep pressing? I keep getting this really worrisome vibe 
from them? Generally, I think that by the time uh, kids are in high school, if they've grown up in the church, um, you have to let it play out because they're not going to tell you the truth. I mean, the, when it comes to sexual abuse of, of girls and of boys, and, and that's another thing I'd say. I'd say the chances are very good that one or both of them have been molested. Um, that's my experience, and I think the statistics bear that out. And, man, you're the most threatening guy in the world for them to come clean to because as they see you, you're, you're a man, you're a Christian, you know, you're everything that they wish they were, but they're not. So I think you, you have to give them openings. If you ask, probably most kids that grow up in a Christian school or a Christian church will not say yes. Um, they'll lie to you. Uh, it might be better to ask them whether you've noticed that they're sort of soft in their, in, their, in their affect and try to reassure them that you're not insulting them, but be ready to give them some specifics and say it would be typical for somebody in our culture today like you to question your sexuality and to be attracted to men instead of women. If you ever want to talk about that, I'd love to talk to you about it. Um, and I, I want to help you become the man. I'll tell you, there's a guy here tonight who, and you have to teach this stuff, and that's what I'm going to get into next. If you don't have a normal part of the place setting at the table for the people in your church that is sexuality, it will be such a hurdle to engage any individual on something like that that you'll, it'll never happen. But if sexuality is just a normal part of life in the church and that you normally speak about what it means to be a man or a woman, what it means to take responsibility as a man, how that is like God, how that's unlike Adam when he sinned, you know, a woman, you know, that you talk to them about uh, what it means to be the life giver, all this stuff, then it's much easier, it's a much lower hurdle for people to talk to you about. My guess is you're going to have more success in mentioning uh, sexual molestation and incest and things like that occasionally from the pulpit. You have to do it, and the mothers won't like it. But in Reformed churches today, the truth is that the Reformed church is a place that is designed and implemented to keep from offending the wives of the elders. Okay? The music, the worship, the way the preaching is done. And you take anything done by a historic Reformed leader that we respect and you do it yourself without them knowing that you're doing what John Calvin did. And it will cause a hullabaloo in the typical large family uh, homeschooling church. It just will. And so that's another thing I would say is if you're going to make a normal part of the place setting in your church of feeding the word, of counseling, of stuff like this, sexuality, okay, it lowers the bar for kids to come to you, for parents to come to you. But I will tell you that that situation is a very difficult one to deal with. And I would say that in David's and my ministry, we've had maybe as many failures in that situation as we've had successes. It's very, very sad. Because typically what you're dealing with in that situation is the fruit of many years of... Uh, uh, a home that has, dis that has destroyed the sexual identity of those children. And so, but when they finally get out, then there's hope of helping them.
Yes, sir. I was um, thinking about the scripture uh, where Paul talked about eunuchs. And I know you said, you know, those that may not have, um, I guess, uh, a tendency toward a woman. Uh, do you believe that there are some, and I, I do, and I believe that percentage is real small, though, that may not have that tendency toward a woman? Um, could you elaborate on that? Yeah, that's probably the issue that we have debated and talked about, uh, all of us who are working on this book, more than any other issue. And that, at its heart, is a question of sexual orientation. And the last couple of weeks, I've been reading a ton of ancient literature from the ancient world, from Greece and from Rome. Because I think that if we're going to understand the reality about homosexuality, we have to go back to times that knew it better than we know it. Okay? And the truth is there are two groups in the homosexual queer studies camp. One is called the social constructivist camp, and one is called the essentialist camp. Um, Gore Vidal was in the, um, he was in the uh, social constructivist camp. You, all of you know Gore Vidal? Remember Gore Vidal, the author? Truman Capote and Gore Vidal. And Gore Vidal was, it was interviewed by a magazine called Fag Rag a couple decades ago. You get the idea, right? And they asked him what he thought of homosexual, the word homosexual. And he says, the word homosexual is an adjective. It's not a noun. He says, everybody uses it as a noun, but, it, but it's not a noun. It's an adjective. And so what he was saying is there is no such thing as a homosexual. There are homosexual couplings, there are homosexual uh, sensibilities, there are homosexual postures, homosexual tastes, homosexual this, that, and the other thing. But there is no such thing as a homosexual. And if you go to the ancient world, it's true. It's almost, it's almost unheard of in the ancient world for anybody to be a homosexual. But everybody had a homosexual lover. Okay, are you with me? And they also had a wife and children. This is the norm of homosexuality throughout human history. That homosexual men are involved with never appear, never, ever, ever appear. Always a subordinate, a protege. He's a patron, he has a protege, all right? It can be a slave, it can be a prostitute, it can be a young boy. And then in a few years, that young boy is immediately to flip and to take a wife, to have children, and himself to become a patron to a young boy who's a protege. And instead of being buggered, he is now to do the buggering. Okay, is everybody still here? <laughs> okay. This is what homosexuality is. It is not an orientation that people can't shake off. It's not some essential identity that's there from the time they're born that soon comes out. It's, this is just simply not true. And you have a strong camp in the homosexual queer society movement that continues to argue, and this is what Gore Vidal, and the guy was no idiot. <laughs> and Gore Vidal says it's not a noun. It's an adjective. There are homosexual acts and if you talk to people who are active in the homosexual world, you know what they'll tell you? They'll tell you a very large percentage of people who identify as gay have had relationships with the opposite sex in the last couple of years. 
And you know why the media would never tell you this? Because they want you to think that there is an intractable, from birth, essentialist uh, kind of identity that you're oppressing the kid by not, you know, recognizing who he is and, and, and the problems he has. And so what we need to do is create sexual orientation, homosexual orientation. We need to recognize they haven't freely chosen it, that it was there, that they discovered it, that they didn't freely choose it. This is what uh, uh, Willow Creek, uh, what's his name, Bill Hybels, he got real teary-eyed on a video online, you know, and talks about 200 of them he's talked to in his church, and not one of them has ever chosen it and everything. Well, listen, here's the way I try to explain it to people. And we're talking about sexual perversion, so don't be offended. This is what I say. The truth is that men are alley cats, Okay? That's who we are. You put a man on a sailing vessel, and there's no woman. He's an alley cat. He's going to have sex. You put him in a prison, he's going to have sex. Okay? Because that's what men do. And then as soon as they get off the ship, as soon as they get out of prison, <laughs> guess what? They like the woman. You know, all of a sudden, they don't have a sexual orientation. What they have is a desire for a woman. And the two are not mutually opposed to each other, okay? That's the norm of homosexuality. That has been the norm throughout history. It's still the norm. In this uh, document I'm circulating here, they talk about it. They talk about the low percentage of kids that identify as gay when they're adolescents and pre-adolescents, they say almost none of them end up being homosexuals when they become adults. They talk about, they say something like a third of the men who identify as gay, when you ask them whether in the previous three years they've had any, any, any heterosexual sexual involvement, about a third of them say yes. <laughs> and then they get really sophisticated and they say to them, have any of you gay men looked at lesbian pornography recently? Now listen, if, if you're really gay and you can't, excuse me, but you know what I'm talking about. You say you can't, and yet you're hooking up with women, and you're looking at lesbian pornography? There isn't even a man's body in it. What on earth are we talking about then? Well, what we're talking about is men are alley cats, and women are emotional black holes. For a man, sex begins in the bedroom. For a woman, sex begins in the kitchen. And so men, they don't care where they get it, they're going to get it. And women don't care if they ever get it. Because it is not intercourse, it is intimacy. Now listen, I'm crassly generalizing. I know that. And so what we, what we all need to realize, men and women, about homosexuality is that men are men and women are women. This New Yorker article that I want to pass out later is written back in 86 or 88. And it's a woman reporter. It's the most fascinating thing I've ever read about homosexuality. It's a two-part series on San Francisco's Castro District, right as AIDS hits it and decimates it. All right? And in this article, she talks about how 
after some major confrontation, she talks to the, the lesbians, and she says that the lesbians have found a retreat center out in the country, and as soon as the conflict is over, they're going out to the retreat center, and they're all going to like get naked and get in the hot tub and then sit around and talk. And, and then the lesbian says, and there won't be sex. And then the writer says, you know, uh, men... The problem is that they're like rudders. They're just like having sex, 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 sex. The problem with women who are lesbians is they don't ever have sex. They just talk and talk and talk and talk and talk. Now, here's my point. Homosexual orientation is where a man ostensibly is incapable of having sex with a woman, right? And if it's a woman, she's ostensibly incapable of having sex with a man. All right? But what happens when you put two women together, and they have sex together, and they're women? And what the New Yorker says is it becomes a black hole of emotional jealousy and need. And that's a New Yorker. (laughs) And so what we have to get out of our minds is the fact that... that God made anything other than male and female. Jesus was questioned, and he said, have you not read from the beginning he made them male and female? There are hermaphrodites, but you weren't asking a question about hermaphrodites. You were asking a question of whether there are people who have an incapacity to have sex with the opposite sex. That's what we mean when we say homosexual orientation. And the truth is, Almost nobody is incapable of having sex with the opposite sex. Okay? So now the question becomes, why then do they act the way they do, and why do they report themselves the way they report themselves? Okay? And here's the truth. The truth is that the essence of manhood is responsibility. Okay? And many of us grow up in such a way that God has, that we do not have the ability of being responsible for ourselves, let alone anybody else, let alone a wife and children. And men who are that way and have grown up whacking themselves with pornography, you all with me, are going to report themselves as incapable of having sex with another man. They have no grid to understand how to take responsibility for a relationship. They don't know how to ask a woman out. The thought of it makes them tremble, even to ask a woman out. And there's no hurdle needed to having sex with another man. (laughs) And those of us who are men know that's true. You know, what's the hurdle to having sex? Once you get over the up factor, it's easy. Because you don't have to have sex begin in the kitchen. You don't have to talk to anybody, <laughs> you know? You all with me? And so we need to stop sucking in what the media tells us. They're lying. And they're lying because it's their goal to make normative sexual perversion. And once we stop listening to the media, you, you read this report that I'm passing around, uh, once you begin to allow the Word of God to be the thing that causes you You build on the word of God. Jesus says from the beginning he made the male and female. And it doesn't just have to do with Adam and Eve. It has to do with every 
newborn, or not newborn, but every newly conceived child in the womb. God makes them male and female, right? And once we begin to think about sexuality as being something that God assigns as a calling that we are to love and obey. Now you hear everything I'm saying is completely contrary to what everybody thinks about sexuality today. We don't think of sex as being a calling that God assigns, and we don't think in terms of it being our duty as pastors and elders and fathers and mothers to teach the little ones to love and obey the calling that God's given them then we're not going to have people all over the place in the church. We'll still have the world. But in the church, we're not going to have people all over the place talking about uh, how they have a sexual orientation that's gay. We're not going to have Bill Hybels crying about how hurt all these people are and none of them made any choice and everything. All of a sudden, what we're going to do is we're going to believe in the moral agency of the souls under our care. And we're going to treat them with dignity. And we're going to see that they made decisions and their parents made decisions that have caused them to not have any capacity to bear responsibility or to be a life giver and to give her life up for a husband and for her children. And then we're going to address that fact. Now, there will still be some people, sir, who will say, I am completely incapable of having sex with a woman. Okay? Because God does make some eunuchs. So now I'm giving back to you the thing that you wanted me to give to you at the beginning, but I'm giving it back to you disciplined. Then we'll know that that's a very tiny group of people. And once we've gotten rid of all the, the, the hangers-on, all the other fake ones, it's a manageable job. But do any of you feel that homosexuality is manageable right now in your churches? No. And what I'm convinced of is that if we begin as pastors to ask people who come to us and say they're lesbian and gay, whether they're hardwired, that's the way that the lesbian of our church refers to it. She says, you know, most women, they're in lesbian, they're not hardwired. So now we say, you know, I've had a lesbian tell me that, you know, most lesbians aren't hardwired. Are you hardwired? (coughs) What do you mean by that? Well, you know what I mean. I mean, like, could you have sex with a man? Well, of course I could have sex with a man. I don't even know. Of all the people I've talked to, I don't even know if I've ever talked to anybody who has told me that they can't have sex with the opposite sex. Then, you're now at the place that the Apostle Paul was when he wrote the New Testament. Okay? And now you see the world Paul was writing to, because you live in it. And now you know why the Apostle Paul said, of such were some of you, And why he also said it's better to marry than to burn. Because if you have a homosexual man who's identifying as homosexually oriented, and you say to him, oh, okay, well, I guess the single life is going to be hard. And he says, yeah, it is hard. Instead, you're useful and you say to him, so does that mean you can't have sex with a woman? And he's going to look at you, I just told you I'm homosexually oriented. You say, yeah, I heard it. I have strict instructions never to do what apparently just happened. Because <laughs> I always break these wires. Get it? Oh, my. You keep talking. I'll just work. Yeah. Okay, here. 
Then you say to them, have you, if you're their man, have you looked at lesbian pornography? And they'll be shocked. You know, are you kidding? You got me if I was looking. Yeah, I asked you, have you looked at lesbian pornography ever? You'll say, ever? You say, yeah, ever. He'll say yes. You say, was it exciting? And then he'll know you have him in a trap. He'll, he won't know where the trap's leading, but he'll know he's in a trap. And he says, yes, I have. And then you say to him, oh, so in other words, you are capable of bearing the responsibility that God made your sex for. And let me tell you, it is a pain in the rear because I'm married and have children. (laughs) Come on, laugh. (laughs) You know, men, is it a pain? Come on, it's a pain. Women, is it a pain being married to him and bearing his children? Uh... And all of a sudden, reality comes back to pastoral ministry and pastoral care. Because now what we're saying to people is, look, if you're struggling with looking at homosexual pornography and you want to look on Craigslist and have a hookup, you are not bearing the responsibility of your sex. God made you to bear a woman and her children. And you're going to twist yourself up so that you just beat your meat, and you go out and hook up with some other man, you mutually beat your meat. How undignified is that? Okay. (laughs) Now, that one's not in the book. (laughs) 